as we have been recently. We are marching through the ancient creed using them, using lines in order to guide our discussion about the core of the ancient faith. What, what is Christianity? What are the things that we claim? Where we put our flag in the, in the ground and say, this, this is core to the faith. This is a non-negotiable. It's not debatable. Uh, what is the doctrine, right? What are, what are the things that Paul and the apostles handed on to that first generation and instructed them to make sure stay pure? Um, what, what is that doctrine as Paul refers to it? We've come to this line today um, referring to Jesus. We re- last week, we talked about Christ's suffering and the fact that it was more than just the cross, but that certainly the cross is the height of that suffering. And today we're talking about this line, which reads, was crucified, Jesus, of course, was crucified, died, and was buried. And so I have at a number of points over the last few months and even year um, mentioned that at some point in the future, we were going to dig into what actually happened on the cross. What are what we call atonement theories or ideas? Today is that day. So we're going to deal with the cross and what God did in that moment. And we're going to use as our guiding scripture today. We will be looking at a number of pieces of scripture as we have this conversation. But this passage from 1 Corinthians 15, and it reads, when this perishable body puts on imperishability and this mortal body puts on immortality, then the saying that is written will be fulfilled. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. You may be familiar with that. If you've ever been to a funeral, you probably have heard this. Uh, I make sure that anytime I do a funeral memorial service, this gets read. Because it is Paul talking about on the cross, what happens is death, sin, the punishment, or death, the punishment for sin is, is defeated. All right, so the outcome of our going astray, of our taking our lives into our own hands, not listening to God, that Adam and Eve began in the story and that we all have inherited, we all act in kind. You don't need me to tell you. You know, we all know that we've, we've messed up, right? The, the result of that is departure from God and therefore sin and death. That is the trajectory that the world is on. And that what Jesus accomplished on the cross Uh, sort of over and above all else, is a defeat of that. If you go back into the Genesis story and you read what is transpiring as this happens, as sin enters the world, as Adam and Eve are kicked out, you'll read what we call the Proto-Euangelion, which is the first gospel, the proto-gospel. And it is a promise that God makes that someday he will raise up a son, a man, who will stomp the head of the serpent, right? It is a promise that God will fix the thing that we broke. In that very moment, in the very first story, comes God's purpose that he will fulfill, we know now in Jesus Christ, thousands of years later. And so that the story, not only of the New Testament, but of the entire body or Bible is a story of God waging the battle against sin and death and ultimately being victorious in Christ. Okay. And that picture, clinging to that is important, especially at a funeral. And so this, this verse and others like it get read throughout a funeral service as a way of reminding us that that is not the final moment, that death in the end, because of what Jesus does, has no sting. It has no victory, that Jesus is the one victorious, that on the other side of death, there is continued and eternal life. So today we're going to talk about what happened on the cross, what happened in that moment as Jesus hangs there, he meets his end, the skies, we're told, get dark, the thunder claps, the, the curtain is rent in the temple, uh, this, this profound moment, something happens, and we're going to talk today about what actually happened. And the term for that is atonement. 
Okay, and you may have heard uh, somebody in the, in the past talk about atonement being at one minute. They kind of break that word down, and, and it is the moment when Jesus makes us at one again with God, brings us back together. Um, but Jesus makes it possible, that sacrifice, that cross, makes it possible for us to be reunited with God. And that's obviously a theme that I talk about every Sunday, right? That's the purpose of what happened in Jesus. That's the people that we are, a people reunited with God. Uh, it's why we can pray like we just have. Uh, we, we have God's ear again. We are back in relationship with God, and it's because of the cross. And in the Bible, we read that Jesus died for our sins. Now, if we're going to talk about the ancient church, which is sort of the purpose of this whole uh, series, and we're using the, the, the creeds to get back to that sort of founding principle, the founding doctrines of the church, and we go and we say, okay, well, what does the early church say that means, that Christ died for our sins? What does that mean? You find sort of a, a, an odd and, and sort of unsettling silence in the early church. Because we've talked in many ways about how they met and they debated ideas about the Trinity and, and Jesus' nature as divine and, and also human, and these debates were coming up, and they were teasing these things out, whether it was just amongst the bishops or in formal councils, as the church became more formulated in those first 500 years or so. Um, but never in those early years is there a formal statement or declaration on the behalf of the church or its leaders to say, this is what happens on the cross, right? They just left it at Jesus died for our sins, and what that exactly entails, they didn't say. And so they never made a particular atonement theory an article of faith. And so what we can say sitting here now 2,000 years later is we look back on the history, and we're going to talk today about the development of the thought around what happens on the cross. We're going to go through six or eight of those theories today briefly to talk about how we've been thinking about the cross. What we can say is you don't have to, I mean, being a Christian is not dependent on you believing one over the other, all right? There are lots of ideas, and there's been, a, as I said, a development of ideas and thought around it. Um, but this is not, we would say, an article of faith, the cross, as far as what, the mechanics of it. The article of faith is that Jesus died for our sins, that it happened, that Jesus' death makes it so, and resurrection makes it so that we can come back into relationship. Jesus' death defeated the powers of sin and death that we submitted ourselves to through our actions, that has been defeated, overcome, and we have new life because of Jesus. So Jesus died for our sins. That is, that's as far as they went in terms of an article of faith or the thing that you have to believe to be a Christian. Okay? So in some ways, we could pray and go home now. right? Because that's, if you walk out today knowing nothing else, know that. That we have lots of debate and discussion about exactly what, what went on. But what's important is you understand that it was the crucifixion, it was the resurrection, it was the ascension that made it possible for us to come back into right relationship. It was the atonement, okay? But that doesn't satisfy our curiosity. <laughs> and it is in delving into what happened and the, the, the biblical instruction and teaching that we have around that, um, which we get a picture and an understanding of, of what went on. And the very first um, a theory that ever kind of came up in the early church in the first, few, first 100 years or very quickly was this one known as recapitulation. And I'm putting the titles on here and then I'm putting a scripture here because it's important that we understand that none of this just came out of nowhere, okay? There are ways, and as we get further into the development and later, particularly into the Reformation, there are ways in which some of it gets taken off in directions that are theological and us thinking and sort of launching from scripture and going in another direction, right? But all of these theories have a root in scripture and that's important to remember. 
So as we're going through these, I would encourage you, and as we finish, I'm going to make the point that we need all of these, right? None of these is wrong. They're just, by and large, by themselves, incomplete, okay? So don't be hearing these and think, oh, that's just terrible and wrong. I have to, I have to kick that one to the curb. I'm going, to, I'm going to argue, and I would encourage you to recognize that all of these things are true, um, and we need, it, we need to make sure that we keep all of those together. Um, so recapitulation, all right? And it, it finds it's one of its supporting verses in Romans 5. It says, therefore, just as one man's trespasses led to condemnation for all, so one man's acts of righteousness led to justification and life for all. And so the argument or the understanding that was sort of first out there was that in Jesus, Jesus is the representative of Israel and therefore all of humanity. And that in Jesus, God is relaunching humanity. He's restarting. He's hitting the reset button. Okay, so we talked last week or at the, at the virgin birth when the spirit hovers over Mary. This is a hovering just like the hovering that happens in Genesis 1. And this is the moment that God is, is recreating, right? Relaunching. And, and this, this is that idea that what happens on the cross, the death and the resurrection somehow recapitulates or restates or restarts humanity. It redefines what it means to be human. And so that we now look at Jesus and say, oh, that's what humanity ought to look like. That's what we ought to follow. Um, and it is his obedient, Christ's obedient suffering and life that pushes that reset, all right? We've gone astray. We've all, as humanity, have gone over in this direction. And it's in Jesus coming, modeling and showing us and, and being obedient to the point of death, he resets and brings us all back over here and says, okay, we're starting over here, okay? And so this is the theory of recapitulation. So it deals with obviously the, the crucifixion in that way, but it doesn't really tell us why he had to die, right? It doesn't actually get into the mechanics of what happened, right? And so it only tells us really about his obedience. And so very quickly, it was understood that, well, that's, that's true. None, none of that's false, but it's, it's, like I said, incomplete, and we need to go further. And then one of the next theories that was developed was what's known as the ransom theory, and this finds support in Mark. It says, for the Son of Man came to be served, not to serve, but to serve, not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many, okay? And so ransom theory literally takes the word out of the text itself and says what's happening is Jesus is buying us back, okay? And this is here in Mark, and, and Paul will even talk about this. Like this is them talking about us being bought back from the powers of sin, okay? Which sounds great until you start developing the theory. And this is some of the problem that we're going to get into today. As you push it further and further, okay, well, if it's a ransom, what does that mean? Well, it means that Satan owns us, right? He's taken us. Except the problem with that is there's no biblical support for Satan owning us, right? The theory says that Satan rightly owns us now. And if we're going to get back, we, he needs to be paid a price. And so God sends Jesus to die on the cross as the price to be paid to Satan, as if the devil is due the payment for our sins, as if he's some rival God that needs to be paid off in order to get us back, right? You push it further, and what you, what you see is that the theory says that God did that. He makes this payment, but he pulled a fast one on Jesus, and then he resurrects him. So in essence, if you take it to his logical conclusion, God lied to Satan to get us back, right? And this makes God a liar, right? And so we've got problems with a ransom theory if taken to its logical extreme and the way that it was talked about, because it makes God out to be something that the scripture says God is not. Now, having said that, there's clearly evidence for ransom as a metaphor, right? And we do find support for the fact that we have put ourselves at the feet and under the power of sin and death through our actions. So we have done that. It's not that Satan has some claim on us, 
that Satan is some rival God that owns us now. It's that we do that, all right? And so God's, God's sacrifice through Jesus is, in essence, a ransom that buys us back, in essence, from, from ourselves and our own volition, our own will, our own wrongful actions that, that do that to us, okay? So there, what we can say is there are some problems with ransom theory, as we've said, uh, but still, it's still incomplete. It doesn't say everything that there is to say. And one of the next um, theories to show up, this one actually came up in the 11th century. So it takes hundreds of years for these to develop and for people to realize that, hey, that's not right. And one of the things that's going on and one of the things that happens in satisfaction theory is the cultures in which people are thinking about this shape the way in which they think about the cross, all right? And this is very evident here and also in penal substitutionary atonement, which we're going to talk about as our final theory, right? But Anselm was, was uh, thinking and operating during a time when the social and ec economic system, the world was ordered according to the feudal system. And so we have lords and ladies and we have peasants who share crop on property and they're feudal lords. And one of the things that was prominent there, much like what we talked about in the first century is this uh, system of honor and shame. And anytime that one of the lower class did something that would bring shame or or dishonor to the Lord, there was a debt of honor that was due to that Lord, right? Or if another Lord or rival uh, in, in a town did something that was against the law or against the code of ethics, what was understood to be present is uh, not necessarily a judicial or civil or legal problem in the way that we would think about it, and certainly somebody like Calvin's going to think about it, but rather a debt of honor that needs to be paid back. And so in order to make up for it, you had to take some action that restores the honor to the one who is wronged, okay? So if a Lord is embarrassed through a wrongdoing, something has to be done to make that okay. Not, not only is there, you know, if you kill a horse, you replace the horse, but if you did something, you need to do something publicly so that people see them well again. Does that make sense? So it's a, it's a public honor issue. And so Anselm, living in that culture, sees that and, and maps that directly onto the cross. And he says that what's going wrong in sin is that we are basically shaming God, right? That we are not acknowledging his holiness, his glory, his godliness, right? And, and through our sinful action, we're bringing shame upon him. We are lowering his estate. We are lowering his status in the world, which is not wrong, right? We are, you know, as, certainly as Christians who claim the name of God, if we go around sinning everywhere, we're basically making God out to be a joke, right? So it's not necessarily wrong, but what he's saying is the cross then is a public display of punitive and restorative justice in that it demonstrates that this debt is paid. So God is a holy God. He has to make right, and he does so through a sacrifice. He demonstrates that he hates sin. He's made holy again because he's punished it in the person of Jesus. And that sacrifice is restorative in the sense that it restores the glory of God, right? He's a good and just God. He's punished sin, and now we can all go on about our lives. Um, and it, you can see how it's very, very much influenced by that 11th century um, feudal system. Um, what we can say also, this finds, I didn't mention, uh, finds some support in the parable of the unforgiving servant. And this is the parable in which uh, the master forgives the debt to a servant who then goes out and won't forgive the debt to another servant, right? And because he won't forgive the debt, the, the master comes back to the slave one and says, well, because you won't 
forgive anybody, I'm not going to forgive you. And so the language of sin in that parable is all about debt, all right? And there is plenty of debt language associated with sin in the text that would give rise to a theory around debt, but the idea of debt of honor is particularly 11th century fuel system debt language, and Anselm used that to fill out his idea. Um, but again, it do, doesn't really doesn't deal with sin, right? All it says is God is a holy God and will punish sin, and he did that through Jesus as a public display of his disapproval of sin, okay? Um, we are marching towards theories that deal more directly with the problem of sin. The next one that develops is moral influence, and we can, we can find this in John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, right? And this theory basically says, or it doesn't basically, it does say that what happens on the cross is God displays and puts on a show for the whole world to see his love for humanity, that he would, he would die for you. And it is in recognizing that sacrifice for you, this death, God is willing to die for you, that somehow motivates you, it warms your heart, it sort of tickles your spirit, um, and it kindles a love for the Christ and the believer. And so it is a, a motivational, it is an influence, a moral influence on us that stirs up our love towards God, okay? Now, that's true, right? I mean, we've even talked about the cross doing that. And as we ponder the cross, um, we, we, we ought to be recognizing the, the depths of God's love for us that were on display there. And that ought, that ought to make some impact on us. But it's not really evident that if somebody just goes screaming down the street, I love you, I love, I love you, and jumps off into the river and drowns themselves, that loving us and dying because we say you love you means anything, right? I'm not necessarily going to be motivated by that. I'll think, what a crazy person as they run it. So it only works if that death does something, right? If that death is truly sacrificial, if it stands in the place for us, if somehow it makes our life better, it's transformative. If the death accomplishes something, well, then it's, then it's influential. And, but the moral influence theory doesn't go that far. It just says, oh, Jesus loves you. Jesus loves you. Be better people. Okay? And, it, and the cross is a picture of Jesus. So it, too, is incomplete, but not inaccurate. Okay? The next one is the government theory, right? And this uh, finds its support in Romans, the third chapter. It says, he did this, God did this, the cross, to show his righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over the sins previously committed. It was to prove at the present time that he himself is righteous and that he justifies the one who has faith in Jesus. And so this is a 17th century theory. Um, and it basically says that Christ's suffering was real and meaningful, and it was a substitute for ours. This is really the first time when we start to see the language that God has stood in our place, okay? Before, they are examples to be looked upon. Um, they are motivational. Uh, you know, we have other ways in which it, it functions, but now we're starting to get into theories and ideas about the cross and reflection on the cross that say that Christ is standing in our place, right? And, but the governmental theory says that God demonstrates the seriousness of sin. So God is so holy that he must punish sin. And so he sent his son in order to exact that punishment on his son. And it is the public display of this justice that then becomes a deterrent. It's, it's as if it says, look, this is how God, serious God takes this, that he, would, that he would crush even his own son, right? Take that to heart. Understand that if you continue to sin, you're headed for the same thing. 
And so it becomes more of a deterrent theory than it does God taking the punishment and moving into where we're going to go here in a minute into something known as penal substitutionary atonement, okay? But we start to see this idea of substitution being injected into the discussion. Then comes Christus Victor, which I say then because this is where I put it in our discussion because it, this is sort of the guiding framework, which we'll talk about in a minute. But this is the most early concept of what's going on on the cross. This is why we read the passage from 1 Corinthians at funerals, right? As I said, this is the overarching narrative of the entire Bible, not just the New Testament. But it is that God comes and is victorious, okay? And we have the scripture we read this morning. We have this Romans or this John scripture. This one's Hebrews, but there's another one in John. And there's also another one in Revelation. And we probably could add to it list after list after list. If you want scripture references, see me afterwards. I, I've got a list here. I'm not going to read them all to you. Um, but it is the idea, and it was, as I said, this is one of the earliest ideas, was that what Jesus was doing on the cross was becoming victorious over sin and death, as we said as we opened. Okay? Um, that he's come, he's submitted himself to sin and death. Right? He's put himself in that place so that he can come out on the other side having defeated it. And for all time, put an end to sin and death for those who would align themselves with Jesus. Okay? Um, that is, that is the, the, the crux of the Christus Victor. Um, and I will tell you that this one, not only is one of the earliest, but uh, in recent uh, centuries, but certainly decades, has gained significant traction. Um, and as I said, it's understood as sort of the overall framework of what's going on on the cross. But that leads us into the most recent, and the one that we're all probably the most familiar with, is known as penal substitutionary atonement. This was a theory that was developed during the Reformation. All right? So that tells you something. What does that tell you? First of all, when was the Reformation? It's the 16th century. Okay? So what does it tell you? For me, anything that's developed 1,600 years later, I'm immediately a little skeptical of, right? What we're saying is the truth that's in penal substitutionary atonement somehow wasn't in the church for the first 1,500 years. Right? Now, does that mean that God can't use someone today to, to bring out a new truth or a new way of looking at things? No. But any th sort of the, the more recent theories are and theologies are, the more reason we have to, to say, uh, let's think about this a little bit. Okay? It's why we're doing a series on doctrine in early church history, because what the early church was saying in those first couple hundred years is the purest, sort of clearest indication of what was being passed on from Paul and the apostles to those first generations, right? And so when you hear, oh, this was developed in the 16th century, just put, you know, your spidey senses, spidey senses should tingle just a little bit, right? You should say, okay, well, let, let's think about this and let's be sure that what's being said is biblical and true. And I'll tell you that ever since this one has been developed, it has taken hold in the Protestant denominations, particularly in the Reformed stream. Remember if we talked about weeks ago, um, out of the Protestant, or out of the uh, the Reformation comes, the Lutheran church, and then the Reformed church, right? And those are sort of the two streams of Protestantism that sort of launched initially. This comes out of that one Reformed tradition uh, from a guy named Calvin. Calvin was a Swiss, Swiss lawyer who was practicing in France, okay? So he's not, first of all, he's not a priest. Doesn't mean he's not a smart guy. and doesn't mean God can't use him. But the reasons that people would look at this and go, I don't know about this, and the historic churches, like the, the Roman Catholic Church and the Eastern Orthodox churches, they look at penal substitution with a lot of skepticism. 
All right, so I'll just say all that to say we need to do some real thinking about this. It has been controversial since it was developed. But I think there's a lot in here that is absolutely biblical, absolutely true, and it starts to get at the actual how. All of these other theories have been uh, good things to think about and ways to think about what's going on on the cross, how we look at it as an influence, how we look at it as a model. This is the one that really says, okay, here's what's actually going on. But so penal substitutionary atonement is developed by Calvin and then subsequently by a, a guy named Hodge who really developed the theory. But Calvin, as we said, is a Swiss attorney, lawyer in France in the 16th century in which justice and a lot of what we think about the legal system, um, individualism, uh, property ownership, a lot of the things that we actually, our country's founded on, these are the ideas that are being developed at that time, Okay. And so Calvin has a particular understanding of what justice means. In the same way as Anselm did in the 11th century, it was all about honor and debt of honor. For Calvin, it's all about making the balance of the scale even. So that as a lawyer, as he comes to sin and punishment and atonement and making things right, it's all about, I've sinned this amount, and so I need a punishment that is equal and opposite in order to balance the scale and make things right. Okay? And so the, the theory, and, and I, I will tell you today, the theory that I'm describing is the popular understanding. And those people who know penal substitutionary atonement really well and come out of the Reformed tradition will raise their hand and say, no one actually teaches that. What I'm going to say is, that's what everybody hears. Right? You go out on the street, you're going you're gonna to hear people voice what I'm telling you today. And so we're dealing with sort of the popular understanding of this theory, which is a problem. Okay? We're going to spend a little bit of time on this one today for that reason. Okay, so as I said, it has become the dominant understanding of what happened on the cross. It's developed by Calvin and Hodge, who's a lawyer, not, a, not necessarily a biblical scholar. It doesn't mean he's not a smart man. It doesn't mean that God can't use him. But 16th century lawyer, there's some red flags that ought to be going up immediately to just say, okay, well, let's just think about this for a minute, okay? Um, and he understands, as we said, justice as punishment. And if we go all the way back to, uh, I think in November, we talked about righteousness and a biblical understanding of righteousness as being in right relationship and meeting your obligations to relationship, not just a forensic or legal category of sinlessness, right? That it goes beyond that and more than that. Calvin's the one that really collapsed it down into sinlessness. To be righteous is to be blameless. And that when God looks at us, because of the sacrifice of Jesus and deems us, calls us righteous, he is moving us from the sinful category, the unrighteous injustice category. He justifies us, which is just the same word, the verb. He makes us right by putting us over in this category, right? So righteousness gets sort of flattened a little bit in Calvin. But in order to do that, think here at the scales of justice. What must happen? We've sinned and tipped a scale. What must happen for God to see us righteous again? He has to balance the scale. He has to punish it, right? There has to be recompense, a payment paid, right? And this bringing in some of that debt language, right? In a different form for Calvin, he's got to balance the scale. And he does that through punishment, right? And so the wages of sin are death. And so ultimately that will be our death. That will be the punishment. And it will be an eternal punishment. So penal substitutionary atonement in its Calvinistic and Hodge formulation and in its popular understanding today says that in order to balance that scale, a God who is good and holy and sovereign and can't deal with sin, 
must punish that sin. He's angry about that sin. He needs to release his wrath onto something. And so if nothing else is done, that's coming to us. And so Jesus goes to the cross to stand between us and God to take that pain and suffering from God, to, take, to bear the brunt of God's wrath, his anger, and God pours out his anger and punishment on that cross, on Jesus. And because that scale has been leveled by pouring the punishment out on Jesus, we now can be moved over into the new category of righteousness. Okay? How many people have heard something like that? Yeah, right? It, that's, it's a very popular understanding. All right, so it gets sort of heightened and, it, 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 you know, over the years it's come even further and we have this now what's called the sort of the neo-reformed or neo-Calvinist movement in which this gets played up big time. And if you go out and you start asking people to talk about how the cross worked, they'll tell you these things. And what most people understand is that sin made God angry. He's ticked off. And he's going to have to punish sin because he's a good and holy God and he can't have anything to do with it and he's mad about it, all right? And so he's going to get mad at you. He's going to get ticked off of you. But thank goodness Jesus jumped in the way and took the blow that was coming for us, right? And what happens is we turn John three sixteen from for God so loved the world that he sent his only son into something that says for God so hated the world that he killed his only son, Right? This, in, in a nutshell, is the sort of popular extreme, logical extreme of penal substitutionary atonement. That Jesus is, or God is an angry God. He's wrathful, right? We talked, the week we talked about Romans, Paul tells us what God's wrath is, right? In Romans 1, 18 to 32, I think, he tells us, he says, God put on display his wrath against the pagans. And he goes on to tell us what God do. What did God do? He just stepped back and said, fine, that's where you want to go. God's wrath is his stepping out of the equation. All right. But the, the Calvinist and reformed and to some extent Lutheran, but modern picture of God and God's wrath is angry, right? It looks at the old Testament in lots of ways and sees the way in which God, you know, struck down Sodom and Gomorrah and does all these things. And, and even those things, there are different ways to interpret them in which is not this hateful, spiteful, vengeful God that just can't stand you and he's going to punish you, but thank God Jesus stepped in and took the blow. And it has been described as the divine act or cosmic act of child abuse. That a, that a just, or it's, it's, it's an act of injustice. And here's this perfect Jesus who stood in the way of an angry, ticked off God who's coming to destroy us all, but thank God he hit Jesus instead of us. Okay. Now, I will reiterate, that's a little bit unfair to the proper theological understanding of penal substitutionary atonement. Part of the reason is it's God himself. Right? You've you got to remember that. But I will tell you that that is, again, I'll reiterate, that's the popular understanding. That's what a lot of us have grown up thinking. That God is angry, he's wrathful, he hates us because we're sinful. And so he takes it out on Jesus and now everything's okay. Everybody can go home happy, right? Because God got his whooping in. Right? Um, but if we take Paul seriously and we talk about what God's wrath is, that's not, that's not what God is, is doing or his, his action or his behavior or his uh, attitude when we talk about God's wrath. Paul tells us God's wrath is literally him. He gets upset and he just says, fine, you're on your own. He didn't come you know, throwing lightning bolts like Zeus. 
there are two moments that we need to talk about in the life of Israel as we reflect on what, um, what is going on and the way we think about the atonement. One is the Passion Week. What is going on? We've mentioned before, what is going on in Israel the week that Jesus decides to come to Jerusalem? Right? We've talked about there's a big gathering. As many as a million people have descended upon Jerusalem for this week because it's one of their three festivals. You remember which one it was? Passover, right? That's going to happen later in the week. Everybody's going to gather. They're going to have their family meals. They're going to rehearse and remember the Exodus, uh, the time. What, well, you tell me what happens at that time. What's all that about? What's the Passover? And how did that ultimately happen? What was the last of the plagues? What was the thing that broke Pharaoh? The angel of death, right? So God sends the angel of death to kill the firstborn of all, all, all the world. And the Israelites are spared. And why are they spared? Because the blood of the lamb. They were told to take a lamb, to kill it, and take its blood, and put it over the doorpost. And as the angel came, they would see the blood on the doorpost, and it would pass over and spare their family. Okay? There's a reason that Jesus comes to Jerusalem at this moment to, be, to, to, to butt heads, which he knew full well would lead to his crucifixion. He did that because of all of the symbolism and the meaning of the Passover, right? What he's doing is reenacting and bringing about the true and eternal Passover, right? What Jesus does on the cross is makes his blood, like the lamb at the Passover, makes it so that death passes over us. What there is not there in any, any sense is God being ticked off, pouring his wrath upon this poor little lamb, right? And because God's, you know, exerted his anger on the lamb, now he's going to save that family. That's nowhere in the story, right? And so for us to hold to penal substitutionary atonement, where this is, this is one of those places where our theology has gone off in one direction. And you hear the theologians who hold this talk, and it makes sense. It's just not biblical, Right? And, and we need to step back and say, that doesn't match up with the stories. Right? It certainly doesn't match up with the Passover. What, if, take, take a stab. What's the other important day of the year that we need to talk about when we talk about atonement? It's kind of obvious. It's almost a trick question. The day of atonement. Right? This was a day in their, in their calendar. Right? Once a year. We've talked about this before because this is the time when the priest goes on behalf of the people into the Holy of Holies to offer a sacrifice to God. Right? I've talked before about how they tied the rope around the ankle of the priest because they go into the presence of God. It was understood that there's a high likelihood that they'll die when they see God. And so they want to be able to yank him out. They don't have to run in after him and die themselves. They want to be able to pull him out, right? This is the day when the priest makes atonement for the sins of the nation, okay? So if you're going to talk about atonement, you can't talk about what happened on the cross without talking about the day of atonement, the system that God had set up as a precursor a forerunner to what was going to happen on the cross. And on this day, there are two bulls. And they both serve a purpose in the, the ritual and the sacrifice. The first one is cut down the middle. It's separated. The priest passed through it as if to pass through the Red Sea, right? It's in some remembrance of that. Takes the blood into the Holy of Holies and on the cover of the Ark the Ark of the Covenant, he takes the blood and he wipes the blood just like the Israelites wiped the blood on the doorpost at the Passover, right? 
And we're told in the scriptures, in Leviticus, it's in the 20s, I think, I can get you to reference later, that this act, the blood, cleanses the people of their sins. Okay? No punishment, right? It wasn't a punishment. It is, there's something in the nature of blood in both the Passover and here at the atonement that is cleansing, right? And it's cleansed on the, what the Greek word is the hilasterion. It's the mercy seat, the cover of the ark, right? Then at another point in the ceremony, they come out, there's a second bull or ram or, or whatever animal they happen to use. It's prescribed. I can't remember off the top of my head. I think it's a bull. Is it a ram? A goat? It's a ram. Okay. Thank you, Mike. <laughs> yeah. Don't hold me to it. We'll look it up. Again, we'll look it up. But the second animal, he places his hand on. It's a ram. Yeah. He transfers the sin of the people onto this ram. And what happens to this ram? It goes free. It's sent into the wilderness. Right? It's sent off into the wilderness to carry the sins of the people away. But again, the sins are thrust onto the ram who carries it away. At no point here is God throwing lightning bolts because he's ticked off and exerting some punishment on either of those animals. Does that make sense? The models that we have, the system that God has set up, the story that God has been telling since the very beginning has nothing to do with God getting so bad that he's got to unleash his anger on someone and thank goodness it's Jesus. Okay? But that is the popular understanding of penal substitutionary atonement and what's going on on the cross. Is God is wrathful, he's holy, he's angry, and he's just going to take it on somebody and thank goodness it was you, Jesus, because we can't take it. This is also one place where uh, paying attention, there's no way you would know this unless you've studied this, but so I'm just going to tell you, but paying attention to uh, your translation makes a difference because there are, I've told, said before, there are translations are interpretations. So we're looking at Greek words and we're trying to tell us what it means, right? And in, uh, it's terrible, I don't have it written down, but there's a moment where um, the translation in some Bibles says that God used Jesus as a propitiation for sin. Does anyone know where that means? You, I see some nodding heads. You've read this before. You've heard this before, okay? Propitiation, what is that? It's an appeasement of wrath, all right? Propitiation means God was angry and Jesus served as a propitiation, propitiates God's wrath, takes his wrath so that we don't, okay? Other translations will use expiation, which means, that's a word that means the sin was taken from. That's more like the second second animal that goes off, takes the sin away. And there are other translations like the NRSV, which I use, it says he served God, Jesus up as an atonement for our sacrifice, right? The Greek word is hilasterion, the word for the Ark of the Covenant. And this is where we get into a little trouble because if we pick up one of these translations that has come out of the Reformed theological perspective, how do we translate this Greek word? How do I tell you what that means? right? In, in a translation, I can tell you in 45 minutes, a little bit about what it means, but to translate it into English, I got to pick something. And so if you pick up a Bible and you read propitiation and you go look that up, you're going to think, oh, well, God, God is angry God. And Jesus takes that wrath for us. He appeases the anger. He allows God to exert his anger on him instead of us. But what I'm going to tell you is that's a theological commitment. That is not what the text actually says. 
The text says that Jesus was offered up as the mercy seat, the Ark of the Covenant, the place where the blood washes the sins of the people. That's a much more faithful and true understanding of what's being said there. It is not God so hated the world that he killed his only son. God so loved the world that he sent his only son to be a sacrifice for us. Now, is the sacrifice penal? Is it a punishment? Yes, right? Jesus, what's, what's the The wages of sin are death. The punishment for sin is death. Jesus absolutely steps into this death. He comes willingly. He seeks it out during this week. He knows it's coming. You don't go, one, he's God, right? So he knows it's coming. But you don't go spit in the face of the religious elite and the powers of Rome and not end up on a cross. Everybody knows that. That's what the cross is for, to punish those people. He knows he's going to his death. He willfully, willingly, intentionally takes on what is our, the thing that is our penalty, and that is death, right? Is it substitutionary? Yes. He does it in our place. He goes through it. He goes through that death on our behalf in order to conquer it, to be victorious. So what I'll say is it is absolutely penal substitution. Let's just be careful we don't go off in this particularly neo-reformed, neo-Calvinistic way in which we're now talking about the wrathful, angry God that's pouring out a punishment, right? What happens actually is Jesus comes in and takes our punishment. We're the ones who punish him. You want to talk about wrath, it's us. It's the Jews who get ticked off, taken in front of the Romans who get ticked off. And then as Romans and Gentiles, it's the whole world, crush him. It's the world, the powers of sin and death, the powers and principalities of this world that come crushing down on him to deliver this punishment in our place. And so it's not God's anger, actually. It's our worst. We're the ones who did it. If there's pain and suffering, it's, it's us. We're doing that. We did it to him. And he takes it in order to defeat it. And so it is absolutely penal substitutionary atonement. But it's not a wrathful, vengeful God pouring out his anger because he's ticked off at all of us. Right? It's God coming himself to take on himself the penalty for our misdeeds to then be victorious over it, to free us, to buy us back, to be our example, to do everything we've talked about today. Here you go, Kathy. Everything we've talked about today is important. It must be put together and understood as what's going on on the cross. All too often, these things have been pitted against each other. And one theologian has come on and said, well, no, that's not right because of this. And then we go off in this direction, we forget that. And so I want to reiterate that what we need to do is grab all of these ideas all of them are true. All of them have biblical foundation. All of them need to be understood in light of each other. And what is happening in recent centuries is that that Christus Victor theory has sort of risen to the top as the framework of the whole Bible, as I said. We understand what is happening is Christ is being victorious. He's defeating the powers of sin and death. Penal substitution is the how. Right? So penal, sub penal substitution serves the larger purpose of Christus Victor. Right? He goes in our place to take the, the penalty to become victorious over the thing that holds us captive, that we willfully place ourselves in the service of. We need it all. 
we need to recognize that God did set the re- recapitulation is right. God reset the button. He showed us in Christ what we're supposed to be like. He put us all back on track. If only we'll accept it and, and walk in that direction, right? It was the new creation. Anselm was right. God's honor is impugned when we sin. We're basically saying, God, we don't want you. We don't like you. We don't want to listen to you. We don't want to do what you say. We're going our own way. Right? It's, that's not wrong. God's a holy God who deserves our worship and our praise and our adoration and our love. And so when we reject that, yeah, that's going to that's knock him, that knocks him down. Like I said, when we as Christians claim his name and then go out and do all these things, we are impugning the honor of God. As we've mentioned before on, on a number of weeks, we ought to look at the cross and see the great love that was on display there. For God so loved the world that he sent his only son to die, to do this for us. That ought to transform us, right? It's not just someone running down the street screaming, I love you, and going to their death as if that did something. He actually did something, and it matters, and it matters greatly. And it also does show, I mean, it, think about what happened. It, have, who's seen The Passion of the Christ, the movie that, came out years ago, right? If you haven't seen it, I know Mel Gibson's not the most popular guy in the world anymore, but the movie is phenomenal. It is gruesome. It is graphic. And I don't tell you to watch it because I want to glorify violence or what you're going to see, but I would say watch it to get an understanding of what happened. When we saw it, it was one of the first weeks it came out. We sat in a theater that was packed. That movie ended, and for 15 minutes, no one moved or said a word. It is so compelling when you see the whips rip around him, grab his flesh, rip it off. Time and time again, you see the crown of thorns thrust on his head and blood dripping down his face. You see him struggle through the streets until Simon has to come in and pick up his cross. And then you see him go to his death. There is a way in which we must understand what happened. We must understand that in order to fix what we have broken, this is what had to happen, right? And that ought to make a profound effect on us. We ought to understand the severity of our errant ways. It's not just something, oh, I sinned. It matters. It matters so much that God himself came and died what is arguably the most gruesome death that ever anyone has ever died. Crucifixion was torture. And it was meant to be. And he went there in order to free us from our plight. And so as we look at all the things we've talked about today, and as Kathy pointed out, and I've reiterated, I'm going to again, we need all of, all of this went on. All of this happened on that cross, right? And the, the point today really is it had to happen. This is the way it had to play out. This is the way that the things we've done to mess up the world get fixed. And that'll just knock us back in our seat for a second, right? When we realize that when we go our own way, when we say, no, God, I don't need you. When we say, I want to be out for myself. When we sin, when we break his rules, when we don't love him, when we don't love one another, we set ourselves on a trajectory that is so profound and so misguided and so off the mark that the only way to get back is that God himself must come and do this. Through no power or effort on our own, are we ever going to right that ship? 
God has to do this and only this. Our brokenness is so profound that it requires the death of God to defeat. Just gonna let you think about that one for a minute, right? And it's easy for us to read the story 2,000 years later and say, oh, the Jews, the Jews, the Romans, the pagans. It's us too, right? They were representative of all humanity through all time. We are equally as guilty. And the problem we have is that we don't meditate on the cross. Through the centuries, we've argued about which one of these theories is right, and we have not gathered them all together and said it's all of it. It's all of it. It's an act of love of God on the cross to defeat the powers that, have ensla- that we have willfully been enslaved to. And we don't look at that and understand it and meditate on it. We take it for granted. Oh, Jesus died, and I don't know what happened. Something happened there. All I know is I, I, if I say that it happened, then I'm going to be good. I'm going to check the box, and I'm going to go on my life. You don't realize that if you don't pay attention to it, and you, do, you just say, oh, yeah, I believe it, and you go on with your life, you haven't moved paths. You're still over here. Just saying, oh, yeah, that happened. Well, the demons believe, y'all. That's what James tells us, right? Even the demons know it happened. If we don't look to it, understand it, take it in, soak in the meaning, the weight of what happened in, in that moment and over those days of death and dissension, which we're going to get to in a couple of weeks, and then resurrection, and what, what happened, and why it had to happen, and that without God, we are in such a mess that that's the only answer. Well, then we don't, we don't really understand what's going on, okay? And to be true followers of Jesus, I mean, what did we look at last week? What does Jesus say? Any who want to come after me can, but what? You've got to take up your cross. You've got to understand, like you've got you to start to know this and understand this and realize that that too is your calling. Right? You are called to suffer for other people. It is in our suffering, in the likeness of Jesus, following in his footsteps, taking up our own cross, that God works his restoration through the world. N.T. Wright has his, his book that deals with this, which is a great book. I recommend it highly. Um, it's called, Mike, you know what it's called? We talked about it last week, right? No, The Day the Revolution Began. Yeah. It's a book on the atonement, and its title is The Day the Revolution Began. Right? And I think that's a profound way to approach the atonement. This is the day that the new creation, the reset button, the revolution started. And to claim Jesus, to claim the cross, to say, I'm a revolutionary, right? I am here to overthrow the powers of the world, overthrow the powers of selfishness and hate and division and divisiveness, of self-servedness, selfishness, of anger. We We are called into a mission that is to revolutionize the world. And God is on that mission before us, around us, And we must recognize that this is what's going on, that we are called into this, and we must go join him in that revolution. That's what it means to be Christian. Many people will say what it means to be Christian is to say the sinner's prayer. There's a reason my second week here was to tell you that that's a lie, right? The sinner's prayer does not make you a Christian. You are a follower of Christ, a disciple of Christ, if and when 
you realize the call and you say, yes, I will be recapitulated. I have been ransomed. I have been bought back. I recognize your sacrifice. I recognize the call on my life to do the same. And I'm going to go that way instead. Faith without works is dead. It means nothing until you pick up your cross and you follow Jesus and join the revolution. So may we all soak in the weight and the meaning of the cross and all that was accomplished there. All of the ways that we ought to look at it and draw strength from it, to draw comfort from it, to be challenged by it, and to be transformed by it. And may we go into this world and do the thing that we've been called to do, to follow our Savior for all of our life, with all of our life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, today as we study and meditate on the cross and all of the things that your people have been saying about what happened in that moment through all time, as we have developed and continue to find new ways to express and understand the work of Jesus, we ask that you would allow it to work on us. Allow us to open our eyes, to take in the atrocity, the injustice, the horror, but at the same time, the love and the beauty and the grace and the mercy that was poured out in that moment. And if we have any conception or understanding that what was going on there was you as an angry and vengeful and spiteful and punitive God was, was punishing Jesus, Lord, help us come to a more biblical and right understanding that this was the moment then you yourself came to enter into our suffering, to take on the punishment which we have brought on ourselves and to come out the other side in victory, to defeat the one thing that can keep us from you and that is death and destruction. That is no longer a barrier. As Paul said, death no longer has a sting. It no longer has victory. It no longer has the last word. So God, we ask that you would transform us into people who live in light of that reality. That all of our decisions every day may be made with you and your sacrifice and our new identity in light of that in mind. We ask as we did last week that you would fill us, you would transform us, that you would show us what it means to take up our cross and follow you. And at the end of it all, we fall on our knees. And we say, thank you. We see how much you love us. And we love you too. Take our lives, take all of us, use us for your will. We are at your beck and call. We, we exist to serve you. We pray this all in the name of your Son and the power of your Spirit. Amen.